On Tuesday, July 9, the IRS held a public hearing on qualified opportunity funds. Who spoke at the hearing, and what were some of the biggest issues that the IRS still needs to clarify in their final set of regulations? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Today we're taking a break from our usual format, I do not have a guest on today's episode, but instead I will be recapping the IRS public hearing on investing in qualified opportunity funds that took place on July 9. So first, a brief background on how we got to this point and where we are now. As you know, opportunity zones were put into law as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in December of 2017. The opportunity zone designations and the map were finalized in June of 2018. The IRS issued the first tranche of proposed regulations in October of 2018, and the first public hearing in response to those proposed regulations took place on February 14 of this year, hereafter referred to simply as the Valentine's Day hearing, or the first hearing. A second tranche of proposed regulations were issued on April 17, and this hearing, the second hearing, that took place on July 9, addresses that second tranche of proposed regulations. Now, while the first public hearing, that Valentine's Day hearing, covered a broad range of topics and the discussion was at a very high level, this second hearing was much narrower in scope. Many of the topics were more technical in nature. I had an informal conversation in the hallway with with a few Treasury officials during the afternoon break at the hearing, after most of the speakers had testified already, and we discussed that how at the first hearing there were just tons of huge issues that Treasury needed to work on clarifying. Uh, they they had a in, they they referenced a huge spreadsheet they had, and and they were getting hit from all sides basically, and uh, there there were there were just a multitude of of issues that they had to do a lot of work on. Um, while this hearing, this second hearing, uh, a lot of the speakers seem to be squabbling over many of the same very minor technical issues. And, and by the way, I say minor, not, not to say that these issues aren't important. They are, they are crucially important as you'll find out, but, but simply that they're, they're more technical in nature and, and and very much more in the weeds of tax regulation and, and some stuff that uh, frankly went over my head as a as a non-tax uh, expert or non-legal uh, expert. And also there were just f- m- fewer issues that need clarification this time around. The Treasury's laundry list uh, of, of points that they have to clarify is much shorter now than it was in February. And it's expected that this will be the final hearing uh, on this topic and that the IRS will issue final regulations within the next few months. So before we proceed further, I I just want to let you all know that a full recap in text form and a full audio recording of the hearing is available if you head on over to opportunitydb.com slash hearing. Again, for a full recap in text format and a full audio recording of the hearing, 
head on over to opportunitydb.com hearing. So this hearing took place at the IRS New Carrollton Federal Building, just northeast of Washington, D.C. There were 19 groups of speakers who delivered testimony. The hearing was attended by approximately 100 people. Moderators were from Treasury and the IRS. The primary moderator was Julie Hanlon Bolton. Others on the moderating panel included Michael Novi, Shireen Flans, Russell Jones, Brian Rimke, Sonia Kothari, and Robert Cernkovich. And now a brief rundown of the topic. So first, um, I'm going to go through the list of what I believe are probably the five most pressing issues, many of which are potentially inhibiting investment in opportunity zones. And, and these five issues were brought up numerous times by multiple speakers. Issue number one, data collection and reporting. This is an issue that was brought up over and over again and how crucial it is to have some level of data collection and reporting so that we can measure the effectiveness of the program. Issue number two that I think is really big and that was brought up various times, many times by multiple speakers, is it pertains to multi-asset funds and specifically with regards to their exit options and the discrepancy between the tax treatment at the different levels of a multi-asset fund, including at the qualified opportunity fund level, the qualified opportunity zone business level, and the qualified opportunity zone business property levels, exiting from each of those different levels re- results in different tax treatment. And there's a need, or a co- there was a call by several of the speakers who testified to synthesize those tax treatments and, and make it easier for funds and investors to exit. Issue number three that came up over and over and over again during the hearing and is very crucial as well is the substantial improvement test and how it should be determined on an aggregate basis as opposed to an asset-by-asset basis. Issue number four that I thought was very important that came up multiple times is debt finance distributions and how those are treated, uh, particularly with regards to the disguised sale rule or the modified disguised sale rule. And finally, issue number five is the deals with the treatment of Section 1231 gains. Uh, there were several other issues that were covered at the hearing, um, but were not mentioned as frequently, but but did come up at least once or twice. And these issues were as follows. Uh, gentrification risks and potential for negative impact on minority communities. Request for simpler plain language clarification of the regulations on the IRS website was brought up uh, once or twice. The dash the definition of vacant property, uh, particularly in regards to uh, timing requirements. Qualification of property owned prior to the end of 2017. Triple net lease, uh, the definition of triple net lease in the context of the definition of an active trade or business. Investor relief if fund sponsoring conditions fail and the investment is returned, uh, should the investor receive some relief there and maybe another window to redeploy his or her capital gain into opportunity zones. Debt finance distributions came up several times. The 70% test, the substantially all provision in the regulatory language as it pertains to the use and location of tangible property. The 31-month safe harbor for active trade or business. Pairing opportunity zones with tax credits, such as new markets tax credits and low-income housing tax credits, interim gain reinvestment at the Qualified Opportunity Fund level, 
Community Reinvestment Act credits uh, potentially being used as an incentive for banks to participate, and applying use restrictions on multifamily housing redevelopments as a uh, eligibility qualifier instead of the substantial improvement test would, would help unlock um, redevelopment of, of atrophied multifamily housing. So in total, there were 19 groups of speakers. They were scheduled to present in 10-minute increments, and then uh, a lot of them were peppered with uh, some questions from the moderators from Treasury and the IRS. Eight of the speakers at the July hearing had previously delivered testimony at the February 14 hearing as well. So what I'll do now is I'm going to go through each speaker uh, one by one. So speaker number one was William Cunningham. He's the creative investment research founder and CEO, and he echoed the remarks that he gave at the Valentine's Day hearing. He expressed caution regarding the Opportunity Zones program. He was um, certainly the most critical of the Opportunity Zones program of all the speakers that we heard from on July 9th. He believes that the program is, quote, fundamentally unfair and fiscally unsound, end quote. He expressed concerns that, quote, negative externalities that a program like this will impose on black and brown people in the 8,700 communities, end quote. And he once again recommended that regulations prohibit elected officials who had a hand in creating the program from personally benefiting. He also urged that Ethereum blockchain technology be implemented to track and report social impact. Speaker number two was Mary Scott Hardwick, representing the Opportunity Finance Network. And she covered three topics during her testimony. One, she expressed support for the OZ framework that had been developed by the Beck Center and the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance, and a request that data be publicly available at least once a year. And uh, Fran Siegel from the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance uh, speaks a a few minutes later here. Um, She follows a few speakers after Mary Scott Hardwick. Uh, Her second point that she made was that anti-fraud and anti-abuse provisions should be clearly defined in some cases, including A, vacant land improvement threshold clarity, B, independent certification of funds should be similar to that for the new markets tax credit program, C, she expressed an interest in extending the ban on SIN businesses to the QOZB level, because currently that technically only applies at the Qualified Opportunity Fund level, but underlying subsidiaries are not prohibited from holding SIN businesses, so there's a bit of an inconsistency there. D, a clear definition for reasonable cause that allows a fund to fail the 90% asset test. So those were her recommendations for anti-fraud and anti-abuse provisions. And her third point was she expressed support for the EIG Coalition's recommendation on how to improve the regs for operating businesses. Speaker number three was Kevin Matz. He is a Strook and Strook and Lavin tax partner, and he delivered testimony on behalf of the American College of Trust and Estate Council. He addressed five topics during his testimony. One, the treatment of a gift of an interest in a quaff should not be an inclusion event. Two, he discussed grantor trust transaction tax treatment. Three, he 
requested that further relief be extended uh, to K-1 recipients who may not receive their K-1 until more than 180 days after the end of the taxable year. And he gave the example that you know many uh, partnerships or other distributors of K-1s oftentimes will file an extension on their tax returns and not end up filing their returns until October. And so that means their their investors or their shareholders or partners who receive the K-1s, typically, you know, they, they may not receive their K-1s until September or October of the next year. At that point, they are well outside of the 180-day window. So he, he urged Treasury to, to contemplate that rule and the timing there a little bit more. Uh, his fourth point was uh, regarded basis adjustments upon death. And then his fifth point uh, sort of related to that uh, included uh, tax treatment of inheritance of uh, qualified opportunity fund interests. Speaker number four was James Rose. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Rose Development, a real estate developer based in St. George, Utah. And he expressed frustration at the level of complexity of the regulatory language. Uh, J- James is is a real estate developer who has had to become a a fund manager as well uh, to take advantage of this program. And, and he he's he's not a tax matters expert. He's he's not a legal expert. Uh, he referred to himself as a as as normal people, and he requested that the regulations be simplified in plain language so normal people like him can better understand them. And and he also requested that the IRS website, uh, specifically the FAQ page on Opportunity Zones, be updated with more information. And he requested that a section be created uh, that he referred to as Opportunity Zones for Dummies. Uh, Basically, just more plain language um, that that would that would be able to be read and received more readily by by people who who don't have their heads buried in the tax code for a living. Speaker number five was Fran Siegel. We we previously mentioned her. Um, she was referenced by or her institute at least was referenced by Mary Scott Hardwick, uh, who was speaker number two. Fran Siegel is executive director of the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. Uh, they partnered with the Beck Center earlier this year to craft the OZ reporting framework. And Fran also spoke at the February hearing as well. Uh, This time around, Fran expressed that she was pleased with the progress that Treasury had made in some regard. She was pleased with the RFI that they issued on data collection, and she was pleased that the White House Opportunity and Revitalization Council is prioritizing the issue of data collection reporting. But she stressed that Treasury should provide greater clarity on abuse prevention, and, and her recommendations along those lines included, one, that the IRS commissioner should maintain broad authority to recharacterize abusive investments as such. Two, to define clear potential abusive actions such as land banking. She wants you know obvious abusive actions defined within the final regs. And, and three, she requested independent certification of community benefit practice of opportunity funds. And uh, to conclude her remarks, she also spoke about the importance of data collection and consistent reporting standards to track the effectiveness of the policy. And she also encouraged the creation of a web portal for real-time data collection instead of an annual reporting on an IRS form. She thought that would unlock much more timely data, whereas you know just collecting the data once a year, way after the fact, we, we wouldn't be able to determine the effectiveness of the program in a, in a timely fashion. So she, she wants, basically she, she urged some sort of system for, for data 
um, in, in more of a real-time format. Speaker number six was Steve Glickman, who also spoke at the February hearing. He is the former CEO of the Economic Innovation Group and as such was one of the lead architects of the Opportunity Zones legislation. Uh, he currently is a CEO of Develop Advisors, a, a consulting firm that consults for large Opportunity Zone funds. Uh, Steve made a few big points during his remarks. Number one, the, the, that the multi-asset funds exiting options is really the only part of the regulations that investors cannot rely on. He made that argument. And, and it needs to be finalized. He urged that it needs to be finalized as soon as possible because while the exit is still a decade down the road, how the funds are being structured right now is going to affect their options down the road, and they need to have that clarity now. He actually requested that the IRS uh, not wait until you know final regulations a few months from now to issue clarification on that. He wants an, an amendment or, or just something in writing from the IRS as soon as possible um, just on this point alone because he thinks that, that, that it's that important. His second point was dealt with issues with operating businesses and, and some clarification needed there. Uh, three, he, he pointed out a potential misalignment between GPs and LPs when it comes to holding periods. And his fourth point, uh, he brought up the issue of the substantial improvement test and, and argued that it should be able to be calculated on an aggregate basis versus an asset-by-asset asset basis. Speaker number seven was uh, two speakers, actually. It was Daryl Steinhouse of DLA Piper and Dan Cullen of Baker McKenzie, and they spoke on behalf of the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives. Dan had previously spoke at the February hearing. Uh, Daryl spoke first here at this hearing in July, and he emphasized that exit strategies need to be aligned. If you sell units in a quaff, if you sell QOZBs, or if you sell the underlying business or project, the QOZB property, you know, the, the tax treatment there should be the same, and currently it is not. Currently, there's a different tax result based on the structure, and there's a different tax result at each level. And he emphasized the need to calculate substantial improvement on an aggregate basis, as many of the speakers throughout the day echoed. Dan Cullen spoke next, and in the allotted time, he made two points. One, debt finance distributions and easing of how the disguised sale rule be applied. It's, it's a little bit heavy right now. Um, a little bit draconian, actually, I think was the word that he used. And two, uh, inclusion events and tax-free transactions was another point that he brought up. Uh, following those speakers, the, um, the hearing broke for, for a lunch break for about uh, 45 to 60 minutes. And then uh, we were scheduled to carry on with Brent Carney, but uh, we actually had a change in the schedule. And so speaker number eight was Argy Sakopoulos. He had to catch a flight, so they allowed him to uh, speak immediately after lunch. He is senior counsel in Jackson Walker's tax group in Austin, Texas, and he was representing the state bar of Texas tax section at the hearing. He covered three topics on behalf of the state bar. One, allocations and distributions with respect to profits interests. And he also made a case for why he's advising his clients to have a separate vehicle for carry. His second point dealt with how the substantially all holding period test is administered. And his third topic dealt with a request for additional clarification on the definition of triple net lease. 
Speaker number nine was Brent Carney, partner at Marizidi Falcon, a small law firm based in New Jersey. And his testimony focused mainly on qualified opportunity zone business property, and specifically these two points. One, the definition of original use, and two, how do vacant properties fall into the definition of original use? Uh, he was also asked in the follow-up questioning by the panel, he was asked about his written comments, which he had not, um, he had not been prepared to, to speak on or had not, had, had not spoken on uh, during his prepared remarks. Uh, but, but his written comments were interesting because he actually requested that Treasury make the deadline for the basis step updates more flexible such that the seven-year and the five-year holds could be achieved beyond the current December 31, 2026 deadline. Because as it stands right now, the way the regs are written, December 31, 2019 is the last date in which an investor would be able to achieve a seven-year hold before the end of 2026. And he suggested to Treasury that that is... Actually, they're not actually limited by the statute in that regard, and they could move the goalposts on those dates if they wanted to. There, there, there were some limitations uh, to to his ideas, but I, I believe it, it's something that Treasury is contemplating. It'll be interesting to see how that shakes out if they take any action on on that and, and potentially do move the dates. The December 31, 2026 date is written into the statute, uh, but, but it doesn't... Uh, necessarily the way it's worded it doesn't necessarily restrict the seven and five year holding periods it doesn't necessarily require that those holding periods be achieved by that end date so you know i think it's going to be interesting to to see how that shakes out uh if we can get those deadlines extended that would uh that would probably do a lot of good for the program speaker number 10 was jill homan and, and she previously spoke at the february hearing as well uh, she's the Javelin 19 Investments president, and she made remarks on five points that she believes will unlock still hesitant investors. Her first point was whether improvements made to property prior to 2018 would qualify as qualified opportunity zone business property. Second point was a request to aggregate expenditures to satisfy the sam- substantial improvement test instead of relying on an asset-by-asset asset test. Uh, again, this, this comment comes up throughout the course of the hearing. We've, we've already heard several speakers address it, and, and there's still several more to come that will address it as well. Three, again, this point again here, the need to synthesize the tax treatment of sale of qualified opportunity fund interests, qualified opportunity zone business, and qualified opportunity zone property. Uh, so we've heard that one come up a few times as well, which, which pertains quite a bit to multi-asset fund exit options. And number four, her fourth point was triple net leasing structures regarding the active conduct of a trade or business. And her fifth and final point um, dealt with requesting that QAF investors, qualified opportunity fund investors, achieve some level of relief if a fund sponsor's conditions fail such such that the gain would be returned to the investor through no fault of the investor that the investor should be granted an additional 180-day reinvestment window. Speaker number 11 was Regina Stodiker, representing Howard & Howard. She's a corporate tax lawyer at the firm, and she 
also, like Jill and a few others before her, had had previously delivered testimony at the February hearing. Uh, This time around, Regina remarked on three topics. One, debt finance distributions. Two, the use and location of tangible property. And three, gain rollover within the 10-year holding period and the inability to reinvest and have gain transactions throughout the life of the 10-year hold and how that's keeping a lot of multi-asset fund investors on the sidelines at the moment. Um, going back to her first point regarding debt finance distributions, she actually re- relayed a, a very interesting anecdote of a partnership that she's advising. Uh, this partnership had a $48 million capital gain from 2018, and they were planning on making a large investment in an opportunity zone in Minneapolis. And they they had until close to the end of June to do it. Uh, June 28th or 29th, I believe. And, and they actually abandoned that OZ investment um, at the last minute. Basically, I think I think a week before it was to be finalized, specifically because of the new debt finance distribution language associated with the modified disguised sale rule in the in the most recent regs from from April. They they saw that and and they they determined that it, that it wasn't going to work out for them. So she urged Treasury to reconsider uh, some of the language of, of debt refinanced, excuse me, debt finance distributions and, and how the modified disguise sale rule applies. Speaker number 12 was Maurice Daniel of Metro Strategies, and he was representing the Economic Inclusion Task Force. He was a last-minute change. He replaced Moses Boyd, who had... Uh, who had been scheduled to speak in this slot on behalf of the Economic Inclusion Task Force. Uh, Maurice remarked on two issues. One, the substantial improvement test for operating businesses should be applied on an aggregate basis instead of an asset-by-asset basis. Again, we've heard this several times already. Uh, Two, that the 31-month requirement for determining an active trade or business should be loosened such that the requirement is satisfied just as long as there is clear evidence of advancement toward becoming an active trader business. And, and this is a, a point that's brought up uh, by a couple other speakers. Not, not, not as common of an issue as the substantial improvement test, but, but an important issue nonetheless. Speaker number 13 was Sarah Brundage. She is the Enterprise Community Partners Senior Director of Public Policy. And her t- testimony focused on three issues. One, the treatment of vacant land to prevent land bankings. We've heard that issue a couple of times already as well. Her second point that she brought up was a request to facilitate pairing of opportunity zones with new market tax credits and low-income housing tax credits. Uh, that, that's a point that's brought up uh, once or twice more as well. And, and her third and final point uh, she urged the IRS to collect and publicly share data. And this is a point that's brought up over and over again by several of the speakers today. You know, she, she made the point that it is critical. Data collection and reporting to the public is critical to ensure that Opportunity Zones are fulfilling its intended purpose. Speaker number 14 was John Shiretti of Novogratic and Company. He had previously testified at the February hearing along with Mike Novogratic, and he returned on his own this time without Mike to represent the Novogratic OZ working group. His comments focused on three topics. One, the special amount includable rule. Two, the special 10-year exclusion election. 
and three, a request for a grace period for quaffs and QOZB properties in an active trader business. So again, that that point's brought up a few other times. Um, Following that, we had a 10-minute break before we got on with the last five speakers of the day. And following the break, we were up to speaker number 15, which is uh, two speakers from the Boston University School of Law, Joseph Darby, tax partner at Sullivan and Worcester, and he teaches tax law at BU. And Christina Rice also spoke. She's the director of BU's graduate tax program. And along with Professor Susan Atlas, who was in attendance but did not uh, speak, they have formed what they believe at, at Boston University, they've, they've formed what they believe to be the first graduate-level tax course in the country that focuses on the Opportunity Zones tax incentive. If there's anyone out there listening right now who who knows of another one, please uh, please let me know. Um, anyway, their their testimony centered on on two topics primarily: one, the treatment of Section 1231 gains, and and two, the timing requirements for vacant property. Uh, they covered many more points in their public comment letter, but of course they were limited to just 10 minutes of speaking time at the uh, at the hearing. Uh, their public comment letter is interesting though because it it was it was drafted not only by um, the faculty members I, I mentioned at Boston University, but also they got their class involved, and every student in the class had some hand in in drafting that that comment letter, which uh, which is is pretty neat. Uh, speaker number sixteen was John Latieri, uh, president and CEO of the Economic Innovation Group. He had also previously testified at the February hearing as well, and he represented the EIG Opportunity Zones Coalition. His comments centered on several issues. Uh, number one, the substantial improvement test and how it should be done on an aggregate basis as opposed to an asset-by-asset asset basis. Again, we've, we've heard that one several times already. Two, the definition of substantially all. That's an issue that's come up a couple times already as well. Three, he requested a working capital safe harbor extension be provided um, should, should be broadened, rather, and active trader business need not exist at the expiration of the 30-month safe harbor, but at least be making progress. So this is this is very similar to the remarks that Maurice Daniel made a few speakers earlier. Point number four he made, the treatment of Section 1231 gains. He he discussed that for, for a minute or two. And 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 number five, his fifth point, uh, was that assets sold by lower tier QOZB should be treated the same as assets sold by the Qualified Opportunity Fund. Again, this is the big issue that's holding back formation and capital raising of multi-asset funds, and this issue had been brought up several times previously already. Uh, Number six, the clarification of anti-abuse rules, which which has been brought up a few times, and and, uh, he he was not alone there in in requesting some clarification on on what the anti-abuse rules Will will be exactly as especially in in some some obvious cases uh, he requested that that they uh, that they be clarified as such in the in the final regs. Speaker number seventeen was Mark Tropy representing the State Economic Development Executives Network. He is the Mark Tropy is the senior vice president at the Center for Regional Economic Competitiveness, and the points he made. Uh, on behalf of the State Economic Development Executives Network were were as follows. Number one, 
that substantial improvement should be tested on an aggregate basis. We've heard that one before, right? We, we've, we heard that throughout the day from, from many of the speakers over and over again. It's a, it's a big issue, obviously. Number two, that interim gains should be able to be reinvested without being subject to income taxation. So that's, that's an issue that's been brought up a couple times as well. His third point he made was that the 90% asset requirement should be loosened to afford additional flexibility and a more realistic timeline. Uh, issue number four was that meaningful but unobtrusive reporting requirements are essential to track the efficacy of the program. And he urged Treasury, like several of the speakers before him, to put in some sort of tracking and reporting system. And his fifth and final point that he made uh, was that the facilitation of affordable housing projects could be made easier for for opportunity zone funds to invest in low-income housing tax credit projects and and easier to pair low-income housing tax credits or LIHTC with with opportunity zones. He requested that 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 be facilitated to, to be made easier. Speaker number 18 was Clayton Wyatt, uh, Chief Capital Officer at Alliant Asset Management. And he suggested three things. One, that banks should be incentivized to participate in Opportunity Zones, in an Opportunity Zone lending, with Community Reinvestment Act, or CRA, credits. Two, that he, he, he actually, like many of the speakers before him, called for um, impact reporting, but he called for it at a much more detailed and granular level than any of the other speakers before him had had dared ask for. He 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 requested reporting be done at a project level and the types of data that that he wants to be able to collect or he wants treasury to be able to collect include the the address, the number of units created at affordable housing level the population served, the average income of residents that occupy those units. So uh, that would be a bit more onerous of a task for qualified opportunity funds to be able to collect all of that data. I'm I'm certain some of them are collecting that anyway, but I I don't know that that would be the norm. Uh, But needless to say, it's, it's another call for more data to be collected. And his third point that he made, third and final point, was that the uh, substantial improvement test with respect to multifamily housing is nearly impossible to do. Uh, just the, the numbers just don't work out, you know, being, having to double your basis essentially, um, in improving a multifamily housing building just doesn't make sense. And, and instead he requested that a change of use requirement would open up additional flexibility for the creation of affordable housing. Uh, speaker number 19, last but not least from the formal hearing was Julia Gordon, She's the president of the National Community Stabilization Trust, and her testimony focused on single-family housing. She remarked that one of the unintended consequences of the Opportunity Zone policy has been a speculative land grab in Opportunity Zone communities, uh, which is not confined to just commercial or multifamily, but extends to single-family housing as well. And she concluded that this may threaten affordable homeownership in these communities. She also requested the Treasury adopt a clear definition of vacancy. She made the point that uh, the USPS, Census, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac all have different definitions of vacancy. And she made the point that that Treasury needs to clearly define what vacancy is, not just the timing requirements, but clearly define what vacancy is 
just at a very basic level and 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 consistently apply that definition. Pick one definition and stick with it. She also made the point that data collection is crucial. You know, over and over again, we heard this throughout the day. And she suggested that the CDFI may be an appropriate entity with the capacity to perform such a task. That concluded the formal hearing from the scheduled speakers. At the end of, of the hearing, there was an open mic session, so to speak, where members of the public, uh, the attendees and the audience were invited to speak. And we heard briefly from four individuals. The, the first individual we heard from was Shay Hawkins, uh, one of the drafters of the legislation. He, Shay is a former tax advisor to Senator Tim Scott, and he left Tim Scott's office uh, a few months ago to form an Opportunity Zone trade group called the Opportunity Funds Association. And, you know, he, he gave a little bit of a rah-rah speech and, and, and indicated that, uh, that he's going to do everything he can and his organization is going to do everything that, that he can to, to make this policy work for the American people. Uh, the, the second unscheduled speaker who got the mic was Eddie Lauren. He is an apartment rehabber. And he, like one of the last speakers who spoke during the formal hearing, Clayton Wyatt, he, like Clayton Wyatt, uh, said that the substantial improvement test is actually going to do harm in the case of apartment um, rehabs. And instead, he urged that a change of use from vacant to operational um, be accepted as, as satisfying the requirement. Uh, taking an unrestricted property to restricted property, and he urged Treasury to consider a change of use from non-restricted to restricted affordable housing to prevent atrophy uh, so that they can transform these atrophied housing stock into into good product. He suggested that 20% of capital on renovation should suffice as safe harbor for affordable housing, essentially, because it Otherwise, it, it doesn't make sense. The numbers don't work out. The third unscheduled speaker was Ashley Harrington, representing the United Negro College Fund. Uh, she made the point that half of the historically black colleges and universities in this country are located in opportunity zones. And she just spoke to urge investors to, to take a look at HBCUs and, and consider investment there because it can make a lot of impact, um, either on the campuses or, or in the adjacent communities. And the fourth and final unscheduled speaker was Adam Walwork, representing Deloitte Tax. He pointed out some of the differences between qualified opportunity zone business and qualified opportunity zone funds or the tax treatment of, of the two different levels. Uh, especially he pointed out the loophole regarding sin businesses, which had been pointed out a couple of times and, and treasury responded that they are actively thinking of the sin business question. So I, I suspect, you know, they dropped a little hint there that they, they, they are planning to close that loophole, I think. And that concluded the hearing. Uh, that was, that was all the speakers. We got 19 scheduled speakers plus four bonus speakers at the end there. Thanks for listening to this recap for more information. And if you'd like to read this recap in text format, or if you'd like to listen to the full audio recording of the hearing in its entirety, please visit opportunitydb.com hearing. And you can also visit opportunitydb.com podcast to learn more about the Opportunity Zones podcast. Thank you. That's it for our show today. 
A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.